you're in that fire forward setting, everything is damage control. And so that's, I think, a really important concept to remember. And so, again, I was not deployed for my vascular surgery skill set. I could damage control vascular surgery wounds um, and think about minimizing ischemia reperfusion um, and obviously dealing with hemorrhage control. But by no way was I required, nor was I encouraged to definitively manage vascular injury. And so a patient like this, acknowledging that it would take you know, uh, a 90 minute, maybe two hour air transit time back to a higher level role three military hospital in Bagram, that patient likely would just keep a tourniquet in place and, um, and then go um, up the chain for more definitive care where the resources available were um, more available. With over 500,000 patients treated globally, Impact Admiral Drug-Coated Balloon is the market-leading DCB for treatment of femoropopliteal disease. Learn more about how 75% of patients with PAD remain intervention-free for up to five years with Impact Admiral DCB by visiting medtronic.eu forward slash five-year DCB. You're listening to The Vascular Podcast from Radcliffe Vascular. Today's host is Professor Ramesh Tripathi. Hi, um, I'm uh, Professor Ramesh Tripathi, and my host today is Dawn Coleman. Um, she is a Marion and David Handelman uh, Professor of uh, Vascular Surgery at University of Michigan. Um, and also a lieutenant colonel in the uh, US Army. Um, I wanted to talk to her today about um, her role uh, as uh, a vascular surgeon and also as a military person and uh, discuss with her various aspects of uh, vascular surgery um, in the forefront of both civilian and uh, war zone. So welcome, Dawn. It's a thank pleasure you. to have you here. Yeah, thank you, Ramesh. It's great to see you and I'm happy to be here. Thanks for the invitation. Welcome. So to start with, I want to ask you, uh, what made you choose a career in the army uh, along uh, with being a uh, uh, a medicine person. Yeah, thanks for the question. Um, I have a really strong sense of service, I guess I'll say. Um, basically, my dad and um, my father-in-law and my grandfather, they all served. Um, so it was installed in me very early on that you you sometimes do things because it's the right thing to do. Um, although I chose to commission a little bit later in my I guess, professional career than, um, than many. And rather than join the active duty army, kind of early on and upfront, I knew that um, I knew that I wanted an academic surgical career and that my civilian professional career um, needed to um, mesh with my military service. And so I made the decision really to commission in the US Army Reserve. And I did that um, as I started my residency here in Ann Arbor. And so the, the terms, I guess, looked a little bit different. And it ensured that I was able to move through my training in the direction that I wanted um, towards surgery and vascular surgery specifically. 
Um, and um, yeah, and so I just, I felt like I had a little bit more control over what that, what that service looked like. I hope that answers your question. Yeah, um, and what has been your role uh, on the war front? Uh, how many tours have you done? And, uh, you know, uh, which war theaters have you been into? So um, I became activated for deployment, essentially once I had finished my residency and my fellowship training. And almost like clockwork, I get deployed every couple of years. I'm attached um, to a forward surgical team, now called a forward resuscitative and surgical team. And I like that part very much. So my, my team that I serve alongside is a, a small team, all things considered, um, of strictly medical personnel um, and mainly surgical and emergency medicine personnel. And so we make a unit um, that is um, rapidly deployable to go in a far forward setting, offer you know, the care that is required in various forms, um, usually under the umbrella of infrastructure and support of a larger, of a larger unit. And that looks a little different every time the Army calls. And so my first deployment was in kind of 2015 going into 16 to central Iraq. That was actually on a Marine base. Um, and it was fairly forward and fairly austere uh, and really busy, essentially um, serving not just our US camp, but also the partner forces that we were supporting. My second deployment was in 2018. That was to the US military hospital in Kuwait and that looked very different. That was really less forward. Um, and my role was to support what's called a role three, which was more of a, a military hospital poised at a site to help more people. And, um, and that site looked very different from the perspective that we had hardened structures and relatively clean operating rooms and clinic hours for specialty care services. Um, and we, we did elective procedures. And, and so that felt very different. My last deployment from which I've just returned uh, was in Southwest Afghanistan. And that was during a really interesting time kind of surrounding May, May 1st and, um, and some important dates as the um, U.S. government and military forces were um, working towards a retrograde plan and what that would look like from the country of Afghanistan. Um, this rotation was extremely different because it was really um, a deployment alongside um, a special operations team um, in which we fell under their chain of command. And our small 25 person um, forward resuscitative and surgical team was split four ways to support four different camps. And um, at my site specifically, I think while kind of from a doctrinal perspective, we were intended to support a small mobile unit, um, I guess from the perspective of kind of going on missions in a sense to be available to care for injured soldiers, um, we really were an enduring medical asset for a small base. And so, um, it was a particularly interesting deployment in which everybody on a very small camp has to work and flex outside of their normal roles to do the normal work that needs to get done. And from a medical perspective, that can be a little daunting, acknowledging um, the threat that you face and the sheer number of um, 
of kind of U.S. potential casualties and partner forces um, that could be received um, and require care if, for example, there were um, a mass casualty. And so it was um, a different mindset from the perspective of how we trained and how we prepared really every day um, alongside um, a mission where we were also supporting some retrograde efforts. And those two, those two roles don't necessarily fall naturally in line with each other. And in fact, they're almost in, in conflict. And so um, I definitely think that it, um, it stretched our team a little bit from the perspective of what we were comfortable doing. But I think it really facilitated very rapid teamwork um, and an alliance alongside the other members of our base. Um, and, um, and I think was particularly kind of meaningful and impactful when I think about the people that I met and the work that we all did together. Going to a um, regular hospital, um, you know, in Kuwait, but for the U.S. Army, and you saw, you mainly did elective surgeries or uh, stabilized patients or post-stabilization patients, you could do elective surgeries on them. Uh, is that right? Jerry, I'm sorry, you cut out a little bit. So I'm hearing from my second deployment. Is that what you're asking uh, at the U.S. Uh, military hospital? The Kuwait posting was almost like a, being in an elective hospital in Kuwait, right? Yeah, a little bit. Um, I will say most of what we responded to were kind of non-battle related injuries and then trauma that was sustained during training exercises. And so um, I guess I should qualify that my deployment with the U.S. Army is actually never as a vascular surgeon. They always use me as a general surgeon and they post me to general surgery spots. But I think my vascular surgery background has come in extremely, extremely handy. But while I was in Kuwait, yes, most of what we did, um, when I say elective, I mean cases that came in that required treatment for gallbladder disease or appendicitis or um, kind of musculoskeletal and skin problems. I assisted because there were a couple surgeons, we assisted each other. And so that meant I did orthopedic surgery and we assisted an, a gynecologist and did a variety of things that I normally wouldn't do either in a forward combat setting or back here at the University of Michigan. And those experiences are really valuable. And I frankly think the people you meet along the way are probably the most, um, the most incredibly valuable kind of um, side effect of serving, if that makes sense. And uh, in Iraq and in Afghanistan, you would have dealt with uh, mortar wounds and uh, mine injuries and uh, blast injuries. Has there been a big change in how we manage these patients, uh, say, uh, 20 years ago and, and now? Yeah, that's a great question. Thanks for that. You're not wrong. The majority of the injuries that we see in those far forward zones are absolutely all related to, to blast injuries. And I guess what I'd qualify is that if you look at the current conflicts in comparison to the conflicts that my grandfather um, supported, I think there's been progress, obviously, in, in, the, in how we manage the, uh, the, the injuries. But I think actually the, the biggest um, evolutions have been in how we prepare our, um, our soldiers for that injury. And what I mean by that is that um, the nature of the injuries maybe hasn't changed as much, but what we see is an expanded um, supply and use of personal protective equipment and what's covered and what's protected from shrapnel. 
Um, and then most importantly, there's been a tremendous effort on training kind of self-care and buddy care and the IPACs that our soldiers have, um, have a rather um, kind of consistent supply of first aid that I anticipate is better than what our predecessors had. There's really liberal and judicious use of tourniquets, and that's really revolutionized um, some of the hemorrhagic um, kind of mortal complications of those blast injuries. And then I think we also have changed how our medical assets are utilized. And so, you know, we have these really forward surgical teams now available with um, perhaps less transit time than, than prior. And so there's earlier access to combat care at a role one B or two setting. Um, and I guess, you know, the other thing I'll say is that um, I think the military has been smart with who they're positioning in these forward settings, expanding the use of our emergency medicine teams specifically, and then acknowledging that there are, you know, a vast number of um, sometimes and often non-camp combat related injuries, but training injuries that require musculoskeletal support. And so we also um, really have leveraged orthopedic expertise um, in, these, in these settings. And um, I, I will say that one of the themes and one of the concerns that seems to run through most of these rotations when I talk with other officers and providers specifically is that um, we do have a fair amount of conflict widely spread across the globe. And we have a finite number of human resources and the op tempo and really the pace of deployment has been really quite um, severe. And as a reservist, I go, you know, every other year and my orders are for about 120 days. But our active duty officers are serving about annually and their terms of deployment are about four and a half months boots on the ground. And so, you know, the service is, um, is significant and um, and I I do worry, as others do, about just the enduring manpower of what that medical support looks like. Um, so I do think that medical care has evolved and there certainly are algorithms for the management of specific clinical problems that are kind of vetted and evidence-based. And so there's some standardization of practice in response to specific injury patterns. And we've got a lot of, um, a lot of kind of product and um, and equipment available to us, even downrange that I've been surprised and really encouraged by. And I think Reboa probably for, for um, non-compressible truncal hemorrhage in this far forward setting has um, borne out with data that looks a little differently than what we've seen in the civilian side and I think is also an invaluable resource. Um, so yes, I think there's been an evolution on so many layers that's to help optimize how we care for our injured warfighters. You talked about tourniquets. Uh, do you use the mask suits as well uh, in yes. acute trauma? And what is the role of uh, hypothermia in the in the war front? Yeah, those are great so, questions. I'll say that I have learned about the mast system and the trousers, but I've not ever seen it employed from a practical perspective. And that doesn't mean that it's not used, but I. I've never been co-located with one, so I've never seen it. Tourniquets are um, are widely available, um, and in fact, they're you know they're part of not just the IFAC that everybody has when they're downrange, but even in our bunker boxes, um, so that you can apply for for buddy care if if the need arises. 
Um, your second question was for hypothermia, and I would say that that's not really a, an opportunity in a forward setting, at least in those more austere camps. Um, they, they may be available in some form as um, casualties navigate their way up the roles of care, maybe towards the military hospitals, like the role threes that we had in Bagram and Kuwait and Baghdad. But honestly, I don't I don't I don't know. I don't know how to answer that question. OK, um, so coming to uh, uh, let's talk about a typical scenario. You get a patient in Afghanistan who's uh, got a shrapnel wound in the thigh and you're suspecting a uh, pseudoaneurysm. Uh, it's a pulsatile. He's got a pulsatile mass with some bleeding. Um, apart from tunicates, what is, uh, how long does it take for that patient to reach a hospital where he can get definitive care and how fast? Yeah, it's a really good question. So I'll use the example from my last deployment. And I think you've got to be cognizant of what your air assets look like and what the situation permits. Um, but when you're in that far forward setting, everything is damage control. And so that's, I think, a really important concept to remember. And so, again, I was not deployed for my vascular surgery skill set. I could damage control vascular surgery wounds um, and think about minimizing ischemia reperfusion um, and obviously dealing with hemorrhage control. But by no way was I required, nor was I encouraged to definitively manage vascular injury. And so a patient like this, acknowledging that it would take you know, uh, a 90 minute, maybe two hour air transit time back to a higher level role three military hospital in Bagram, that patient likely would just keep a tourniquet in place and, um, and then go um, up the chain for more definitive care where the resources available were um, more available. And if there were problems with active signs of hemorrhage and an expanding hematoma in an area that could not be managed with a tourniquet, then those patients are having an exploration, probably vascular control with or without the use of shunts, um, but, but still not getting kind of reconstructed or definitively fixed. And part of that is requisite because you've got um, limited resources when you think about not just equipment and people um, and the potential for a more incumbent casualties um, and blood, but, um, but these wounds have typically resulted from a blast injury that still really needs to declare itself. And so managing tissue that has had that type of injury can be really dangerous because your repairs inevitably may break down because things still require perhaps more debridement um, and, and irrigation and, um, and some time before you can, can really definitively manage with acceptable results that don't put the soldier at risk. And you wish that uh, you could be actually on the forefront and do vascular surgery rather than just damage control? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I have always felt like I wish I could use my skill set a little more. That said, I think I'm a better trauma general surgeon and resuscitative surgeon because of my vascular background. And really, at the end of the day, um, I want to be where I can be most helpful. And it turns out that I'm more helpful 
um, really in, in that capacity. And so um, nobody wants to go downrange and kind of twiddle their fingers and not work. And I will say that at least with our current conflicts, most of our medical sites are not being overwhelmed with vascular trauma. And so honestly, the work that I've done to this end, um, I think has been really meaningful and fulfilling and, um, and it's fine. I'm general and vascular surgical trained as many um, current vascular surgeons are a product of the uh, fellowship and not the integrated residency. And so um, most of what's been required of me in a forward setting, I'm, I'm quite comfortable doing again, probably because it's damage control and not definitive general surgery reconstruction. So it's it's worked okay so far. Oh, you've done really good. Um, and do you get uh, uh, you know the feeling that three months of deployment is enough? Do you think you get burnt out during that time, working round the clock and things like that? No, I think um, I think, and it ends up usually being kind of three to four months in total. And I think for me, acknowledging what I leave behind with my various leadership roles at the University of Michigan and my civilian practice and my family, for me, three to four months of time is just right. Um, you know, I will say everybody kind of gets their swing kind of mid-rotation and then it's always hard to make a transition. Um, I don't, I don't get burnt out. That's um, that's the wrong word because I think the work looks so different and it feels so different. And so I get homesick um, and I, I miss I miss creature comforts and I miss human beings. Um, but the work doesn't burn me out. It's very different work um, and it's it's a system that's very simple and very easy. And so I think the the work that tires us stateside isn't the work that I do overseas. And I've often joked with my partners um, that I work with, not just at the University of Michigan, but at other societal levels when we talk about wellness and wellness initiatives and the SES Wellness Task Force, as an example, I always suggest that the cure for, for burnout is to get deployed because it does a couple of things. I think it just extracts you from that system, the system that is really not provider focused, that wears us down a bit. Um, I think it's different work that puts you out of your comfort zone. And so you spend a lot of time learning and navigating a new environment. And, um, and I don't think that that wears people down. I think that's exciting. Um, it is a period of time where there are very few distractions. So you kind of have to make the right decisions. Um, you have to exercise and you have to sleep and you eat three meals a day and there's only so many things you can do. So it's kind of permissive of self-care in a way that I find work back home is not always. Um, and so, and then you, you meet amazing people, right? And I love people. So it's really fun for me to, to find myself in a new environment with new people and kind of navigating that and making relationships and, um, and learning from others who do things differently and are smarter than me. Um, it's, it's just different. So yeah, I don't, I don't think that ever the work pace has been so sustained that I'm, that I'm dying of fatigue and rather, I actually think it's been healthy for me to kind of bounce between both roles personally. And I think it refreshes you because you get a break, break from your mundane work. And at the same time, you see things in, from a distance and also, get newer perspectives, isn't it? 
It's true. And I really can't over um, emphasize how much gratitude um, and kind of a refined perspective you bring back. And so I always come home particularly grateful for what we have um, here in the United States and what this life looks like. And, and that's something that needs to be periodically refreshed, I think, uh, in a really intentional way, because we are we are so extremely lucky um, to be in this country. And are there any lessons from your army life that you can take and apply to your civilian life when you come back home? Oh yeah, 100%. And I try to, and I try not to lose it when I come home because you get overworked so quickly. Um, you know, I think that probably, probably the biggest lesson is to think when I'm downrange and it's uncomfortable or it's unsafe or I'm homesick, there are certain things you do that make it easier, right? And so um, communication and um, kind of supporting relationships as best you can um, having conversations with people, which you often, I often fail to find the time for back home, just nurturing those relationships. I think it's important to have um, a, a team, not just professionally, but personally, that can help celebrate victories with you when they happen, but also can help you um, when things are hard. And so just remembering that when you come home and employing that and I think acknowledging that the work we do is hard. I think it's hard when you're downrange and you're taking care of military casualties. I think it's hard when you're practicing on a civilian side and you're doing vascular surgery. It's hard. We have hard problems to fix for patients that you want to do well. And, um, and it's important, I think, to have a support group to kind of talk that out, especially when it gets really hard and outcomes may not be great and acknowledging that you're not on an island. I think it's important to celebrate um, things worth celebrating. I think it's important to maintain optimism and humor. And then again, really kind of channel and focus gratitude. And I find myself kind of doing that when I'm deployed and trying to remind myself to do it more frequently when I'm not deployed because I think they're, they're valuable um, skill sets. And then I think the other thing that I do actively downrange that I try to do also on the civilian side is to really utilize your team to their fullest capacity, acknowledging everybody's different perspectives and skill sets that actually makes you really kind of powerful. Um, and I think a lot of the leadership I've seen um, modeled for me um, and the leadership lessons I've been coached really highlights that importance. Um, and it's, it's, fun. It's fun to see how um, how there's so much similarity in working with a team in a very forward setting and then coming home and thinking about doing that on the flip side. And so, um, yeah, I, I do. I do take a lot, I think, away from each deployment and I bring it home with me. I also know that you are um, involved with the Wellness Task Force and tell us something about it. Uh, uh, with the uh, Society for Vascular Surgery and what you intend accomplishing and Talk to us about uh, the concepts of burnout in the workspace and uh, uh, what SVS is planning to do to help uh, its members or uh, advise vascular surgeons worldwide to combat this. Yeah, so thanks for that uh, question. I, um, I really fell into this opportunity by happen chance and by kind of a slip of the tongue when I was a new program director. 
Um, but it turns out it's been a really um, kind of fulfilling and impactful um, role to play within the society. And so I'm tremendously grateful for the opportunity to work with um, my co-chair, Mal Shahan, and our collective very engaged kind of enduring task force. And we've really been convened since 2017. Um, and I wanna credit the SVS leader because I think the leadership, I think they recognized and acknowledged a very real problem that threatens recruitment. I think it, it threatens retention of our vascular surgeons and ergo our collective vascular surgery workforce. And I think they took that challenge um, and instead of kind of turning a blind eye, which often is very easy to do, I think they decided to tackle it kind of head on and very progressively. And I'm super proud of that response um, because I do think that it really shows um, across several initiatives that have been launched in the last few years, a, a really um, strong and deep commitment to helping helping our, our members. And I personally appreciate that concept of servant leadership. I think we should all care very much about each other because we're all really in this vocation to do the same thing to take the best care we can of patients that have really tough problems. And I think it's a hard job, but I think that within that um, challenge, I think we all very much um, love what we do, right? Like we picked a specialty that is hard. The pathology is hard. The surgical problems are hard. Um, and we tend to respond to a lot of crises. And so some of us are a bit of a, a junkie in that perspective that we really do want to be challenged and we really do want to work. But the work has become something different than the work that my predecessors and my mentors worked. It's in part work around patient care, but there's a lot of system level bureaucratic and administrative requirements that are um, that are really compromising. I think the efficiency of work that we do and the control that we have over the work that we do and then really the, the meaning that we gain out of that work that we do. And I think if it is simply responding to emergencies and caring for patients, I think we do that naturally and always without complaint, but it's the onslaught of other, of other stuff that, um, that becomes really a, a grunt to, to manage through. And so um, really what we've seen the SVS do over the course of the last few years is not just inaugurate this task force to focus proactively on interventions that could optimize our our workforce at kind of individual and larger levels, but there's concurrent work through other councils and committees that support wellness. Um, and I'll give kind of two examples. And um, one is through the Government Advocacy Committee, acknowledging really the high level partnership requisite to make any meaningful change on the EMR and billing and coding and what reimbursement looks like. Um, and so like we need, we need those, those individuals on that council working to advocate for us at a specialty level, at a vocation level, alongside larger partners like the American College of Surgeons um, and larger partners with legislation. And so that's ongoing, you know, in line with our ultimate goals, but separate from the work that our task force is doing as an example. The other area that I think is really exciting and so important falls into the space of leadership, and I'll get to your comment earlier about DEI, Ramesh, but we really have a DEI task force that has kind of convened, culminated, made um, recommendations after a careful needs assessment and now has formalized into a committee with interventions. Um, that's really hugely important when you think about the culture of vascular surgery across the board. Um, and um, 
a lot of disparities um, and um, frank mistreatment that individuals are subjected to on a day-to-day -day basis. And so, um, you know, that is a response to, to a higher need, but also supporting wellness. And our leadership development team helping to um, kind of coach our next generations, not just in leadership skills to go out and be better leaders, but to grow during that. And it turns out that um, leadership is directly re related to the wellness of the individuals serving under that leader. And so the SVS um, exclusive of our task force is, you know, proactively doing these things, whether or not they were intended to support wellness, they are. And then our task force has really been intentional about a needs assessment that culminated from a 2018 survey recently published in some focus groups that have identified a few specific challenges in the space of ergonomics and chronic pain um, and um, in the space of um, work-life balance and also um, in the space of some interesting concepts that fall into the domains of Kind of perception of patient safety um, where you're working and implications of malpractice on um, on your own wellness scales and so we're really kind of targeting our efforts to respond to those needs um, and right now i think where we're at is an exciting time where we're launching a first of its kind um, inaugural coaching program in collaboration with the academy for surgical coaches and it's really meant to be in part a professional development tool for our coaches, but we're training up um, 16 to 18 active vascular surgery members to serve as peer coaches, um, other members in need that apply for the assistance. And the coaching program is going to, you know, touch on a lot of different aspects of um, professionalism and vascular surgery, surgical coaching, case selection, technical skills, but then also, um, kind of how you're conducting yourself in the operating room, how you're managing conflict, how you're communicating with your team. There'll be also probably some overlap a little bit with leadership development and coaching and, and really it'll be kind of individualized for the member in question and it'll transpire over the course of, of really three to four months with, um, with a finite number of um, right now virtual sessions to meet and, and have that experience and opportunity and um, coaching has been really nicely shown to, to correlate with wellness. And so I do think we have an opportunity to have a very clear touch point where vascular surgeons can help vascular surgeons because there really are some nuances, I think, about what we do that when we talk to other physicians, it resonates and it's meaningful to get feedback from another vascular surgeon, especially for those in practice that are lacking that network and that support locally. Um, and really kind of need the ear of somebody to help them navigate a specific set of challenges or refine a specific skill set or judgment area. And so it's going to be a, a kind of a big, broad opportunity. And, um, and we're super excited about it. And we're finishing up our coach training now and hope to launch the program live um, this fall. So coaching is not just about improving people's techniques. It's also uh, they need to improve uh, what's going on in the headspace and also managing their social environment and, uh, you know, work environment. And at the same time, uh, managing stressful situations. And uh, I think coaching will be really good for um, many vascular surgeons. Um, in fact, most vascular surgeons, because I feel that you could have a black box sort of environment where 
you, uh, a video and audio recording of what you do in the operating theater can be recorded and uh, analyzed and then like a black box analysis. And then you could tell which areas a particular surgeon needs more attention to. Have you looked at that concept? Yeah, so I've not personally looked at that concept and I will say this is not in my lane and I'm learning a new skill set as we go because I volunteered to serve as one of the coaches. But I will say that there are data getting collected looking at um, you know, true observation of recorded techniques and procedures that allow you to talk through and coach then in retrospect different maneuvers in the moment. I saw you chose to manage the tissue this way. Tell me why you did that. Tell me why you liked this specific instrument for this process. And I think most of the data that I'm familiar with has come from um, the minimally invasive literature where you've got really um, laparoscopic or robotic um, techniques that have been um, kind of recorded and can be easily observed together and talked about in, in, in real time together. And there may be a role for that. And we're talking about whether or not that's an option or opportunity for some of our vascular surgeons, if nothing more than to look even at um, cine runs from an angiogram or an endovascular procedure or still shots um, as you walk through you know, an advanced endovascular case. And so I do think there's opportunity there. I do think there's a precedent for something like that. Um, I think that the nuances and the challenges that we'll need to overcome to enact something like that with this program are going to be institution-specific barriers when you think about the concept of patient privacy, confidentiality, um, and then just the idea of recording surgeons operating. And so there are a few hospitals where that is kind of under a blanket of approval, um, and those vascular surgeons may be able to participate in, in such a way. Um, but I think at the majority of hospitals across the United States, that's not really um, a concept that has been um, widely either adopted, agreed upon, kind of vetted, or even wanted, because there, there's a lot to kind of unload and talk about when you consider videotaping, you know, an entire procedure and how that 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 team is moving forward. And I, I can think of some of the conversations we've had even predating my work as a vascular surgeon, as a general surgery resident, when these concepts have been discussed at a higher level. So it, it'll be certainly, um, certainly worth talking more, but not something right now that we've embedded into this program specifically. Yeah, the future sounds very exciting. Um, <laughs> Always does. <laughs> um, so, uh, we are almost at the end of our talk, and uh, I, I think that we uh, dealt with a lot of stuff that you are doing. And uh, uh, I want to thank you for all the leadership role you have taken and to uh, look at all these aspects of, you know, a surgeon's life, and uh, also appreciate your excellent work on pediatric and uh, especially uh, renovascular hypertension. Uh, a passion that we both share. And um, it's lovely to see you. Thank you very much for your talk with me. And, uh, you know, I hope to see you uh, in person in a meeting somewhere in the United States next year. Oh, we yes. can't travel at the moment from Australia, but I'm hoping for 2022.
Oh, yes. Thank you. Thank you, Ramesh. This has been fun. I really appreciate um, you taking the time to meet with me. It's wonderful to see you. I think what you guys are doing is so important, and I'm, I'm so happy to be included. So thanks, and I do look forward to seeing you soon. This podcast was brought to you by Radcliffe Vascular and is sponsored by Medtronic. To view the series, head to radcliffevascular.com forward slash vascular podcast. You can also find us on all well-known podcast platforms and follow us on Twitter at Radcliffe Vascu. Thanks for listening.